Dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the opportunity that we have to come together in this day, to look into Your Word, to seek what it has to speak to us, yet in this day, we're thankful for the reminder this morning of the power that you have to heal. We're also reminded of the elements in this world that we face that are against your healing, that seek to work against you, especially in the days that we live in. And we pray that you would be with us, that you would grant us perseverance, that you would grant us endurance and strength, but also peace as we seek to honor and to serve you and to live out your word in the days that we live in. All these things we thank thee for and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to uh, turn to Genesis 12 and uh, carry on from where I, I left off the last time a couple weeks ago. Again, I've been looking into Abraham's life and the, the way God led him and called him. And I'd like to start with the 10th verse of chapter 12. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is the, his wife and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her, and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he asked sheep and oxen, and he asses, and men servants, and maid servants, and she asses, and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh with, and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou, she is my sister, so that I might have taken her to me to be wife? Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away, and his wife, and all that he had. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that they had, and Lot was with him into the south. 
And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. I've read through the fourth verse of the 13th chapter. So last time in the verses that we read, the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, we talked about Abram's calling from God. We talked about how God had told him to get out of his country and from his kindred and go to a land that he would show him. And Abraham went and followed. And we talked about different callings that we might have in our life today. Perhaps, uh, well, we have the, the spiritual calling to be baptized into Christ's death and to live for him. We also may have a calling from an occupation. We may have a calling as a parent, as a father, mother, uh, perhaps as a, uh, a child to serve others in our family. We may have a specific calling that God has laid on our life to uh, pursue some dream or some uh, something that perhaps we're not even aware of yet. And yet, with whatever calling we have, we face what I will call today, circumstances. We like to take inspiration from the calling, from the directions that God has given us. But it seems like often circumstances conspire against our callings. Circumstances conspire against these beautiful future designs, future plans that we may have for our lives, that we may think even that God is, is calling us to. If we look at Abraham's life, we see many different circumstances that came tried to come between him and his calling. We see many circumstances that seem to have directed his life in certain directions to nudge him one way or the other. If we go back to Genesis 11, We see at the end of Genesis 11, verse 32, where his father Terah died. And this seems to have been the impetus for Abraham to have left Haran and moved south into Canaan. 
If we look at our reading today, we see there was a famine in the land. Again, another circumstance that seems to have directed Abram in a certain path. In business, or in our work, we often do, we're looking at uh, long-range planning, something's often done called SWOT analysis, or SWOT planning. SWOT standing for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Opportunities and threats, we look at those from an external standpoint. We look out, we try to see what are opportunities and threats outside of the organization that could impact what we want to do. We look at internal strengths and weaknesses. What are the strengths and weaknesses that our organization has that might impact what we plan to do? What's interesting to me is that I find a lot of times in life that these wonderful plans that we make as organizations or as individuals, that the unexpected happens that you didn't plan for. Somehow I don't think uh, Abraham here was uh, planning for a famine to come about. Again, today we face many of these same types of external events. We look around. Nobody was planning for COVID-19. If we look around, nobody was planning for a war to break out in Ukraine or a potential war between Israel and Gaza. So a lot of times, we as humans, we are caught by surprise, and we need to make choices in some way to deal with the circumstance that we've been dealt in life. If I look at Abram's Abram's choice here, I'm sorry, I, I tend to call him Abraham, but at this point, God has not changed his, has not directed him to change his name from Abram to Abraham. And of course, Sarah is still known as Sarai. If you look in Abram's life here, one has to wonder what he thought. God, he has this calling to leave God and go and Last time we saw in Genesis 12 that God told him that he was going to, that he was going to uh, show him a land and that um, he was going to give him specifically this land of Canaan. And now this famine comes in Canaan. So I can imagine Abram sitting there and thinking, 
well, God promised me that he was going to give me Canaan. Maybe I should just stay here. Maybe I should trust God that he's going to provide for me in spite of this famine. On the other hand, I could probably move on, go to Egypt, and things would probably be better there. Did Abram make the right choice? I honestly don't know. Again, another uh, question as a human that I'd like to have answered perhaps. Maybe someday in heaven I'll get that answer. But for whatever reason, Abraham decided that his best choice, from his human perspective at least, was that he should go to Egypt. Now when God brings circumstances into our lives, it's usually for some type of testing. And if I go back again to the SWAT analogy and apply it individually instead of as an organization, if I look at strengths and weaknesses of Abraham, Abram, I'm going to see this weakness, which I have difficult putting into words here, but this fear of what man might do to him. And twice in his life, especially, it centered around the how beautiful his wife was, how beautiful Sarai was. So at 65 years of age here, Sarah was still very beautiful. Again, we talked about the longer lifespans last time, and so uh, this, of course, is uh, closer to, uh, to middle age. But for whatever reason, Abraham was afraid because his wife was so beautiful. And he decided that he was going to tell everyone when he went down to Egypt that she was his sister which is true, she was his half-sister. She was also a daughter of Terah, his father, but from a different mother. We go back to Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. So she was a half-sister to Abram. And so it seems that, though, that this was, uh, to me as a human at least, it would seem like this was the, the wrong thing to do. And it, it uh, seems to here have created quite a conundrum because the Egyptians did recognize how beautiful Sarai was. And Pharaoh took her to her house, 
to his house. It's hard to imagine, perhaps, in our days, but, of course, the uh, king or the pharaoh often had these, these, uh, this harem of concubines and of potential concubines. Uh, we see in the story of Esther a similar thing where they brought all of the young virgins into this house. They kept them there, and they prepared them to visit the king, see if the king, they would find favor in the king's sight. So I imagine that this was perhaps somewhat similar where Sarah was brought to live in the king's house or at least his, uh, his harem. And meanwhile, Abram here from a material good standpoint, he was, do, do, he was uh, being treated well. He had sheep and oxen and servants and camels, donkeys. He was being treated well during this famine because of Sarai. However, it seems that God intervened. Pharaoh and his house started to be plagued because he had taken Sarai, Abram's wife. And somehow, Pharaoh figured out that Abram had lied to him, or had told him a half-truth at least, and said, called him aside and said, why did you tell me that uh, Sarai was not your wife? And he had to confess his half-truth. He said, uh, that uh, he had to confess that Sarai was actually his wife. And Pharaoh was, seems to be upset and commanded his men to send them away and with all that he had. So it would seem that God would be pretty disappointed with Abram here. And yet, out of this, Abram seems to have prospered. He returned to Egypt with Sarai and all that he had. And it says in chapter 13, verse 2, and he was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. And he went back to Bethel, under the place where his tent had been before. And he stayed there, and he worshipped the Lord there. So in spite of this episode, God seems to have blessed Abram, at least materially here. During this famine, it seems that he grew his flocks and his wealth.
and we see that in spite of what seems to be perhaps a mistake, a sin, a misinterpretation of God's word, that God was with Abram, that God protected Sarai, and that God protected Abram. And brought them safely back to Bethel in a better position than when they had left. This morning, in Bible class, we had the account of the lame man being healed by Peter and John. And as Christians, we like to believe in the miracle of healing. And we should believe in the miracle of healing. And yet, as believers, we know that God doesn't heal everything. We know that the Apostle Paul did not, was his prayer for God to take away his thorn in the flesh was not answered. What do we do when we're following God's calling and in the midst of that, the famine hits? In the midst of that, a loved one dies. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem called The Rainy Day. At the end of it he said, Thy fate is the common fate of all, and to each life some rain must fall. Some days must be dark and dreary. He wrote this after his first wife passed away. Now when I look at scripture, I've often quoted Jesus saying, The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And yet, if we go back to Matthew 5, where that is found, if we look at the context of that, Jesus says in five, Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. If we look at the context of this, Jesus speaking to those that live primarily in an agrarian society and a farming society, the rain was a positive thing, not a negative thing.
And thus it is sometimes in our lives, the circumstances that we think of as rain in a negative sense are often rain in a positive sense. When we are challenged as humans, when we are feel threatened as humans, when circumstances come that we feel are set against us, the sociologists say that we revert to our, our primitive brain and our first response to these threats is to fight or take flight. So if we look at Abraham in this circumstance, perhaps we want to, want to say that, well, his first response to this famine was to, uh, to leave, to take flight, to run away from the threat. All of these circumstances, of course, add stress to our lives. Obviously, the famine, if, if Abram, Abram had stayed, in Canaan, that would have added stress to his life to try to survive during the famine. He went to Egypt, of course, we're moving to a different culture, to a different society. This, of course, has its own stressors. And we as humans, sometimes when we take flight, we do the same thing. We run from one threat or one stressor into another one. And then, of course, being under this stress, of course, Abraham, it says, again, he feared. He was afraid of what might happen to him. That they feared that they would kill him if he knew, they knew that Sarai was his wife. So again, running or leaving, in this case, did not bring respite. It only brought new fears. And we don't even know, was this a logical fear or was this just something that uh, Satan plagued him with, something that came into his mind we have no idea. In the Bible, of course, there are times when we're asked to flee. First Corinthians ten fourteen, wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. The Amplified adds. And that includes loving anything more than God or participating in anything that leads to sin and enslaves the soul. We're supposed to flee idolatry and sin. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. 
Paul's counsel to the young man, Timothy. So we know in the presence of obvious sin, we're asked to flee. We see the example of Joseph in Potiphar's house, how when she came and tried to seduce him, how he left, ran as quickly as possible, even leaving his garment. But sometimes God asks us to stand and to fight instead. First Timothy 6.12, the Apostle Paul again, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Also, Ephesians 16, as Brother Emil reminded us last week, last Sunday afternoon. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So being equipped to fight is important for Christians being ready to fight spiritually, to resist Satan, to resist the dark forces of this world. However, there's one other option that the Bible gives us that is not quite flight or fight. And many times, as much as we dislike it. This is the counsel that God gives us in this world. Second Chronicles 20:17, Jehoshaphat was told to tell the children of Israel that instead of fighting, they were supposed to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus, as the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt. They're standing at the banks of the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his chariots are coming toward them. The children of Israel are murmuring against Moses. They are trapped between all of Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And Moses said unto the people, Exodus 14, 13, Fear not, fear ye not, don't be afraid. 
stand still. Don't move. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you this day. And then he continues with one of the most completely awesome and yet completely, uh, must have been completely dumbfounding to the people that heard it. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, we've been in Egypt for 400 years. We've been suffering for generations as servants there. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Why? Because the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. The Amplified says, keep silent and remain calm. Moses' advice to the people, uh, Keep calm and carry on in the uh, parlance of World War II England, I guess. <laughs> but God, I have this calling. God, the circumstances are conspiring against me. But God, shouldn't I be moving? Shouldn't I be fleeing? Or shouldn't I be fighting? Shouldn't I be taking up arms to fight? So many times when we feel the circumstances in life are against us, God's answer is for us to stand still and see his glory. Don't be afraid. Keep calm. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus talking about the... Uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew 10, 22, Jesus also repeats it in Matthew 24, 13, where he's talking about the sign of his coming. And he says, Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. He that stands firm to the end shall be saved. He that patiently perseveres and endures shall be saved. When Annie Johnson Flint was three years old, her mother died, giving birth to her baby sister. Later, her father passed away, giving up both children to the Flint family, who adopted them and brought them up in the Christian faith. She first heard God's call when she was young and joined her church at age 18. After high school, she attended a teaching college or teaching training. But after teaching for two years, she began to suffer from arthritis, which became worse until she could no longer teach. She had to give up her work, and eventually she was unable to walk and had to use a wheelchair. Both of her adoptive parents, meanwhile, died within months of each other. 
But she had a calling. She still had a gift from God. She created verses in poetry, hand-lettering them in spite of her arthritis. Card publishers soon published them. They also published a brochure of her poems, and thus became, she became a minister corresponding to people that wrote to her for encouragement and help. She believed that God had laid her aside for a purpose, even though the purpose was obscure to her at times. Those who knew her said that she always looked on the bright side of life, she always looked forward, and she always enjoyed her life in spite of her pain. And she wrote this hymn. God has not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He has not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God has not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide. Never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river turbid and deep. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing kindness, undying love. May God bless you and your circumstances and bless his word today.